This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Ah, welcome everyone. This is New Books in History, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm the host and my name is Jeanette Cockroft. Today, we're gonna be talking with Sharon Thompson, the author of Quiet Revolutionaries, The Married Women's Association and Family Law. Let's welcome Sharon Thompson to the program. Welcome. Hi, Jeanette. It's lovely to talk to you. I'm excited to talk to you about this book as well, Sharon. Why don't we start with your telling us a little bit about yourself? Okay. Um, Well, as you might hear from my accent, I'm from Northern Ireland, but I actually work in Wales. I'm an academic at Cardiff University. Um, And my background is in family law, although this is a history book, it's also a law book, but um, my historical research has been something that I've been looking into a little bit more recently. Um, So I have been living in Wales now about 10 years or so, um, and yes. (laughs) How did you happen to write this book? Well... This book, actually, the idea for this book started when I was participating in a collection called Women's Legal Landmarks. So um, in order to explain where the idea for Quiet Revolutionaries came from, I need to talk a little bit about Women's Legal Landmarks. So that was a book that was published in 2018, and it was an edited collection by um, Rosemary Alchemudi and Erica Rackley. And the point of Women's Legal Landmarks is this big, big book with about 80 chapters in it, and it's all about looking at kind of game changers, real turning points in law that affected uh, women's legal status in lots of different ways. And I ended up writing a chapter on a relatively arcane piece of legislation called the Married Women's Property Act 1964, which um, it was it was an act really about the ownership of housekeeping savings. So, you know, it, it was something that was about uh, a relatively um, self-contained issue. But when I started looking into the act and how it was passed, uh, I came across this group called the Married Women's Association who um, 
I'm ashamed to say I had never come across before in all of my work in family law over the years. Um, And I became intrigued as to why that was the case, why I had never heard of them. And I found out that actually um, they hadn't really been written about before. And there were boxes and boxes of files in the archives that um, were waiting to be discovered. And I thought, well, this is a, a story really that needs to be told. Absolutely. So let's start at the beginning. What is the Married Women's Association? The Married Women's Association is uh, a group that was set up in 1938. So it was just before the Second World War and it set out as a a kind of group for housewives. Uh, The context of when it was set up was quite an interesting time for uh, the women's movement. Um, In a sense, it's a time in the women's movement that's characterized as a period of decline because we're looking at 10 years after women all women got the vote in um, Britain um, 1928 of course was when all women not just over 30 got the vote uh, uh, it was available to everyone so women are becoming more politically engaged women can now become MPs women can now become lawyers um, but actually then there isn't just one big issue to fight for anymore all of a sudden there are lots of different issues and at that time the women's movement was very much motivated by um, a kind of formal idea of equality that men and women should be treated the same um, and should have uh, the equal treatment in terms of, you know, entering into those professions, for example. And uh, a lot of feminists within that time, as a result, were actually quite opposed to things like marriage. They could see that marriage really was um, something that was expected of women, but in turn was quite oppressive for women. Um, Having realised that at the same time, there were other women who could see, well, no, there needs to be something done about this. There needs to be a group set up for housewives. So the Married Women's Association arose out of this group called the Six Point Group. Um, It started out as a subgroup about housewives, but became a group of its own. And it had women and men within the group who... um, work together um, to promote this idea of equal partnership in marriage to try and reform the law of marriage uh, really to make things better for women both inside and outside the home um, through recognition of the work that housewives did. Is is this shaped in some way by the depression and the economic circumstances of the UK in this period? That's a really good question. I think um, in some ways it was shaped by a variety of circumstances. There were lots of different things going on at the time. Um, Of course, the the outbreak of the war saw um, lots of interesting things happening in terms of women's legal status. Um, One of the things that was happening around the time that the Married Women's Association was becoming independent was an issue around um, compensation for injuries and air raids. Um, And this really brought this issue of women not being valued or women's work in the home not being valued to the fore. Um, The reason being, if uh, you were a civilian who was injured in the areas uh, in the area strikes during the war, so if you lost a limb, for example, if you were a man 
who was employed, uh, you would be entitled to compensation for that because, you know, you might not be able to do your job anymore. And so you would get economic compensation. If you were um, a woman who lost your arm or leg or whatever, um, you wouldn't be entitled to compensation but your husband would be entitled to compensation because you wouldn't be able to do the housework anymore. So he could go and get some money and and retain that money and the proprietary rights over that money and use it to then hire a housekeeper. So it was really that idea that, um, you know, women's work, women were invisible in terms of their value. Um, and it really highlighted the, this point of, of needing to attribute value, economic value to women's work in the home. And so the Married Women's Association actually was one of the women's groups that campaigned to reform reform this particular issue. Um, and it's one of those things that, um, again, seems relatively self-contained, but it broader significance really highlights this this point about women's unpaid labor and um how it wasn't valued and in some ways still isn't valued absolutely um how does the married women's property act of 1882 um shape the context of this oh it it really it really did shape the context of um the married women's association in lots of different ways um so uh to explain the married women's property act 1882 just um maybe in case listeners haven't encountered the act um what it did was in in britain it introduced this um notion of of separate property uh within the 19th century this was of huge significance because um prior to that act when women got married they uh lost all ability to hold property in their own rights if they earned an income that income was their husband's um anything that they owned became the property of their husbands. So it was this idea of coverture. They were under the cover of, of their husbands. Um, so the introduction of separate property meant that what was his remained his on marriage, what was hers remained hers upon marriage. Um, this was hu- of huge significance to many of the feminists who were actually members of the Married Women's Association Um because they uh, were very much aware of their own feminist history. Uh, They saw this as a really big stepping stone towards women's emancipation, which of course it was, you know, once women could own property in their own right, they could then argue more persuasively that they should be entitled to the vote, for example. Um, On the other hand, though, uh, women uh, and men are both having equal property rights on paper didn't mean that they had equal property rights in reality. Um, And that was the problem that was facing lots of housewives in the middle of the 20th century in Britain, 
because when you got married, there were lots of things that you still lost. There was still lots of um, overhanging um, problems from coverture in terms of this idea of unity in marriage. You know, there were things like the marriage bar where lots of women had to give up their jobs when they got married. Um, they um, didn't have the same opportunities. They obviously weren't paid the same as men. Um, so they didn't have the ability to acquire property in the way that men did. Um, the matrimonial home would be almost always in the husband's name. And of course, under separate property, if it's in his name, she has no right to it. Husband's income is his income. She has no right to it. So anything purchased with that income that is used as a family, you know, the bed that you sleep in, the furniture that you use day in, day out, that doesn't belong to you. That belongs to your husband. So it really we have this idea of the Married Women's Property Act. Yes, very significant, but its strict application did not match up with how people actually lived their lives and used property. And that often really led to a lot of economic vulnerability for for married women. The law was really letting women down in that respect um, because um, divorce was not so easy back then. And so if you if your husband um, deserted you or if your marriage broke down for whatever reason and you weren't divorced, you wouldn't have any right to maintenance. But you also there, there was also no ability for a judge to give you any rights and property either. So there was a chance you could be left virtually destitute. And that was happening to a lot of women who were writing letters to the Married Women's Association and the women and men within it were you know, campaigning to raise awareness as to just how badly the law was was letting these people down. So there is no concept of community property at all. Is that right? That, that's right. Yes. Yes. Um, community property uh, was uh, was rejected. Um, it was has been looked at over the years by the Law Commission of England and Wales several times, particularly throughout the 1970s um, and has repeatedly been rejected, though, of course, um, now, since the since 1970, we do have laws that allow judges to um, um, to pr- make financial provision and to make property adjustments. But before that, there there wasn't that same ability. So women could get maintenance on divorce, but if their husbands didn't pay that maintenance there was little that they could do and they didn't have um, rights to their husband's property. Um, In terms of um, how this also shaped the Married Women's Association, just to go back to your question for a second, um, it was also the Married Women's Property Act uh, 1882 was also really, really important contextually in terms of how it influenced the ideology of the group itself. Um, So they not only had to decide, uh, you know, or decide how they were going to promote women's work in the home and how that should be valued in law, they they had to be able to draft bills and articulate in those drafts how that should be valued. So there were some 
members of the Married Women's Association who believed the best way was for um, assets to be pulled during marriage so that uh, husbands and wives should both be able to know what the finances were, have that information, but also have access equally to the income coming into the home and that that should be pulled and, and and that that to them would represent equal partnership in marriage. But there were other members who were worried or concerned that that would undermine the Married Women's Property Act and the idea of separate property. And the reason they were really concerned about separate property being undermined was because they were they feared a rollback to coverture and all that was associated with that, which really was very oppressive for women. So they saw that as a step back from those those feminist gains. And, and what they preferred instead was for equal partnership and marriage to be promoted through a kind of wages for wives philosophy, where um, the husband actually paid the wife a sort of wage during the marriage. Uh, so, so she was almost like his employee, but the idea was that she her work in the home was seen as actual work um, and that she was then as a result able to acquire property in that sense um, so that formed the kind of early ideology ideology of the married women's association but um, that quite quickly uh, was uh, put to one side in favor of the the notion of pulling of, of assets which the members of the Married Women's Association were still quite careful to distinguish from community of property. Um, Again, because there almost did seem to be um, a stigma associated with community of property because of its because because of its connections or perceived connections to coverture. So um, what what class of women, what kind of women are we talking about that are involved in the Married Women's Association? And how big a group does this become? It's difficult to put a number on it just because I'm going by the records that are in the archives. And um, that's always the case that there are these sorts of gaps within within the records. Um, it, it was a small group, though. Um in the mid 1940s, it looks as if that was when the membership peaked, and even then, that would only have been around 2,000 um, members, which is much much smaller than other kind of parallel women's groups. Um, so it was concentrated. Its its executive committee certainly was concentrated in and around London, and that was comprised of really quite powerful members within society so uh, some of the men included Ambrose Pelby who was um, a family lawyer um, and there were journalists in it there were MPs such as uh, Edith Summerskill so she was an early uh, Labour MP and um, I uh, did some interviews for the book and her grandson told me that she was the first woman to call herself a feminist in parliament. Um, You know, she really embraced the word feminism at a time that it was still really quite a controversial thing to say. Uh, There were also people um, 
so there were authors within the group Fair Britain, uh, renowned pacifist and author of Testament of Youth, uh, Dora Russell, um, also a very um, prominent writer, um, and um, Helena Normanton, uh, who was the first woman to practice as a as a barrister. In, in England, so these these women, you know, they were uh, quite quite powerful figures, people of influence, people of uh, relative wealth. I'd suggest uh, when you look at the branches, uh, though, across uh, Britain, it becomes a little bit um, more difficult to generalize in that way, though, um, and there was a lot more diversity. Uh, the problem is with the uh, more working class women involved in the group, it's more difficult to find out about who they were. Um, there isn't a lot in the archives about them. Um, I've done my best to try and do some digging to, to you know, with lists of names and stuff, but it, a, a lot of people have, have passed away. Of course, one of the difficulties with studying women is that if they get married, they will often change their name. Though um, Helena Normanton, for example, was, uh, the th- I think, the first woman to have her maiden name on her passport after she got married. Edith Summerskill also didn't just keep her her maiden name as an MP, which was quite controversial at the time, but um, her children didn't have her husband's name. They had her name. So there were, so there were, it was a bit of rejection of that, but still amongst the membership that wasn't necessarily representative. So, so to give you a picture of, of who was in the, the group, it's, it's difficult to give that, that complete picture. Um, and that's one of the reasons why within the book, I have tried to provide as many extracts from letters and from members that, you know, maybe I only know what I can see in that letter, but at least I'm finding a way of putting those voices into the book. So it's not just uh, the elite London-based members that, that are in there. Um, let's talk a little bit about the significance of Blackwell v. Blackwell. Oh, yes, Blackwell and Blackwell, yes. Um, well, that connects to the... Um, chapter that I mentioned at the beginning in the Women's Legal Landmarks book, the Married Women's Property Act 1964, um, because Blackwell and Blackwell, it, it doesn't sound, it's certainly not one of those cases you would dig into a family law textbook and say, this is a really important case you need to know for your family law module. Um, it's only one page long and you don't really get much information out of the judgment itself. But when you... Um, look at it from the perspective of the Married Women's Association, it was a hugely important case. And it was a case ostensibly about housekeeping savings, but more broadly about the need to reform married women's property rights. Um, so this, so Mrs. Blackwell, uh, just to explain her background and her story behind the case, she was in a difficult marriage. She'd been trying to leave her husband for quite a long time. Um, she brought in some lodgers to try and make some money for herself. Uh, she used some of the money to pay off the mortgage in the house. She put aside savings left over from housekeeping money in a co-op account. So she was very frugal. She she really um, 
she really made a huge effort to build up as much savings as possible and eventually she was ready to leave her husband and she had around 103 pounds in her bank account and she thought right that's enough for a new start for me and my for me and my son um now this is kind of where we uh where we start to see how married women are left so vulnerable because of um the law the doctrine of separate property um, she thought that that money was hers, but her husband took her to court and claimed it and said, no, that's my money because that money is derived from housekeeping savings. Housekeeping savings is is just um, money that a husband would have paid a wife in order to take care of um, household items, groceries, things like that. Um, but because it came from his income, she had no ownership interest in it whatsoever uh, she argued well actually I earned this money um, this isn't just comprised of housekeeping money it's comprised of money from other sources too such as bringing in lodgers um, and all of that work uh, the judge disregarded that however and said no this belongs to the husband the law is clear on on this um, and the married women's association funded her appeal um, they brought a lot of press attention to the case. It was in several newspapers at the time um, and really did a lot to publicise the case. Now, she ultimately lost it. She um, she she lost everything, really. It was a, a really terrible story. But the Married Women's Association used it as propaganda, saying, look, this happens every day. This happens all the time. Um, and it really runs contrary to popular opinion there were polls at the time that seemed to suggest that um 75 percent of the general population were of the view that um actually housekeeping savings belonged to the wife that was the popular view um but they but they didn't um mrs blackwell was publicized within the newspaper saying well if i'd have known this i wouldn't have bothered saving so hard I would have been a spendthrift I would have spent it all um, so the Married Women's Association after that case uh, really used it to lobby support um, and they went to the the Lord Chancellor's office they um, really stirred up they, they brought pet- petitions to Parliament Edith Summerskill asked several questions within within Parliament to to raise consciousness around the issue um, and it, it looks as if, you know, if you if you take a quite conventional view of law reform, it looks as if they didn't get anywhere with it because this case was in um, the mid-1940s. Nothing happened. The law wasn't reformed. But um, when I did some archival research and looked at the um, records of the law chancellor's office, they did actually ruffle some feathers. Um, one of the reasons that they did manage to have some impact was that at that time, the the um, the, the the war effort was trying to raise savings, going around um, selling savings. Of sort of savings vouchers where um, sort of war bonds where if you invested in the government you got a really big return on that and they really targeted housewives door to door saying this is a great way for you to make money for you to invest your savings and it was sold to them as if the housekeeping savings belonged to them so the Married Women's Association used that against the government in a way saying well you know it 
why would you bother um, investing in these savings when you don't get anything out of that? That's for your husband, not for you. And the government went, oh dear, this this is not good. This is potentially disastrous actually for the savings movement. And they started to look into reform. There's letters going back and forth where you know, they're thinking, well, actually, maybe there is something to this. Um, although it didn't amount to reform at the time, uh, 20 years later, the Married Women's Association persisted and persisted, and ultimately the Married Women's Property Act 1964, which was brought before Parliament by Edith Summerskill as a private member's bill, um, stated that housekeeping savings were to be shared equally between husband and wife, and that was passed. And that law is still in force today. Um, and although it didn't obviously achieve broader kind of the broader ambition of equal partnership in marriage of joint ownership of property more generally it only related to housekeeping savings it still represented that philosophy of of equal sharing and so it was a sort of um symbolic reform in lots of ways it 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 really um encapsulated their their message and it showed that um you know, sometimes these campaigns, I mean, often these campaigns do take decades to to get anywhere. And often when um, there is success, it's very much compromised success. How how does the care uh, of care and feeding of children fit into this? Um, so. The care and feeding of children is something that uh, women have historically been responsible for and it was something that um, really only started to be recognised around the time the Married Women's Association was established in the kind of early to mid 40s with the introduction of the welfare state in Britain. So um, to explain just um, how it it all connects up, um, the Married Women's Association is um, connected with um, ideas around um, equality in a sense that isn't just about treating men and women the same, but around recognising women and men in their different roles as having different needs and different entitlements. And that is often known as new feminism by historians and is associated with Eleanor Rathbone, who really did provide quite a lot of intellectual inspiration to the association. And Eleanor Rathbone, um, one of the things that she campaigned for, again, for decades, was the introduction of family alliances, um, which was you know, really for the first time um, recognition of the work in relation to children, alliances that would give money, give money in recognition of that. But initially that was introduced as a package within the welfare state, you know, the post, post-war era. Um, but it was conceived by the government as something that was to be paid to men, not to the woman. Um, and again, that was something that... Um, thanks in large part actually to the work of women's groups including the Married Women's Association 
they campaigned against that and explained why it needed to be paid to the woman, not to the men. Again, in recognition of um, their roles within, typically within the relationship at that time. Um, let's talk a little bit about the Royal Commission on Marriage and Divorce, 1952, because that seems to have had a significant impact on the Married Women's Association. Yes, it 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 did. It did have a significant impact in lots of ways. One of the way, one of the biggest ways was that it led to a split in the group and to um, a lot of its leadership leaving. Um, So the Royal Commission of Marriage and Divorce, um, it was a commission that looked at, as the name suggests, reform of the law on on marriage and divorce. And um, just to kind of contextualise within family law history, it's not generally seen as... um, well, it reported in 1956 and its main recommendations were not taken forward. So, you know, on a kind of uh, traditional look at the things that are important and within legal history, it's perhaps not seen as a particularly important act. But um, the report actually contains lots and lots and lots of extracts and deputations from different parts of the women's movement so in lots of other ways when when we look at it from a kind of women's history point of view it reveals that at a time when um, some historians have suggested maybe the women's movement wasn't very active this maybe is evidence that would suggest otherwise Um, so uh, in um, the the Royal Commission, when it was established, it was something that even leading up to it, the Married Women's Association had been pushing for someone to look at comprehensive reform of the laws on marriage and in particular in relation to married women's property. So they saw this as their big opportunity to make a difference. Um, and they had this bill for equal partnership in marriage. And they thought, OK, we've tried and failed to get this bill for equal partnership in marriage through. It hasn't worked so far here's here's our chance now um so at that time the president of the married women's association was helena normanton so she was the one who was the first woman to practice as a barrister she was um a really really interesting person in her own right actually she had a really interesting history not just within the law but within within women's activism she she uh was really you know, hugely respected within the Married Women's Association and had a lot of authority. And um, she put forward uh, evidence to the Royal Commission on Marriage and Divorce. Now, the problem with that evidence was that it didn't represent what the group as a collective wanted in terms of reform of married women's property rights. Uh, So, as I said before, what they wanted in terms of their equal partnership and marriage bill was this notion of joint ownership of property during the marriage with then um, discretionary provision for the judge to make adjustments on divorce. So, you know, joint ownership of income, joint ownership of uh, of certain types of, of property in recognition of the partnership as being equal. Helena Normanton was one of those members, though, who 
thought this would undermine the Married Women's Property Act 1882 and that this was a kind of rollback to coverture. That was that was her view. Um, so the evidence that she submitted was um, did not at all represent the uh, Equal Partnership Bill and instead um, recommended that husbands should give wives personal spending money that they should basically you know pay pay women as employees the wages for wives philosophy um, and not only that she said that if married women were negligent in doing their jobs properly if they maybe like spent that money improperly if maybe they used that money to gamble or buy cigarettes or something then their allowance could be cut um and um even worse than that they could be punishable by law so really you know they were um there were rules that should apply according to helena normanton um so it it's it sounds it sounds really bad from or it sounds really outrageous that she would suggest this, um, especially the point about wives being able to be punished by the law. But in Helena Normanton's, I suppose, defence, she was she was also potentially trying to be a bit strategic here. Um, you know, at the time, these conversations around valuing women's work in the home were quite radical. Um, they were not really being taken very seriously. Um, and so it was really, really important to get people in power on board with the reform. I mean, that was another reason why it was really important that the Married Women's Association had quite um, powerful men within the group too. Um, they had to sell it as something that was good for husbands as well. <laughs> so, you know, if husbands are able to hold their wives accountable, then the people who are in power at that time are, of course, men. The lawmakers are are men. The judges are men. Um, and so it's going to be more palatable to them. So that was the evidence that was submitted this um, led to complete pandemonium, however, within the Married Women's Association, because they said this is this is this is infantilizing. This is basically like giving wives pocket money. This is not what we want at all. This is not equality. And not only this, you did this without our consent. You went behind our backs, um, and we want this evidence to be withdrawn. Um, Helena Normanton and several leaders within the group at that time when the executive committee resigned um, in quite a in quite quite a dramatic um, meeting. <laughs> the the minutes for that meeting uh, I I uh, try to portray um, a recount in, in the book because it really does make for quite quite good reading actually the, the drama of of what happened. <laughs> um, they storm out of the meeting and the Married Women's Association has basically lost most of its leadership. And those members then go on to set up their own um, opposition group called the Council of Married Women. Um, the Married Women's Association then after that has to decide what to do next. So they um, manage, um, even though they've missed the deadline and there have been all sorts of delays, they manage still to submit evidence to the Royal Commission on Marriage and Divorce. Um, 
but yes, uh, one of the the big consequences, I suppose, was that it brought those conflicting ideologies that had been ongoing for several years. It brought all of that to a head, and it really shows. It really reflects a lot of debates that continue today, actually, around how we should value unpaid work in the home. There are a lot of people who would still suggest that, you know, um, equality should mean, you know, formal equality in terms of sameness of treatment, that it's infantilizing to women to sort of reinforce those homemaker breadwinner roles. Um, whereas there are other feminists, of course, who still say today, as other members of the Married Women's Association would, that, well, no, we have to look at um, how uh spouses and not just spouses people in relationships take up different roles within relationships and they aren't the same and recognizing the differences within those relationships is what matters in terms of really achieving um substantive equality so those same things that we talk about over and over again today were really um what were like sparking fires within the Married Women's Association in the 1950s as well. Um, what about the Women's Disabilities Act of 1951? Oh, that was something that would, the Married Women's Association was sort of more um, tangentially involved with in that it was um, a uh, a private member's bill that was unsuccessful that Edith Summerskill was uh, promoting. Um, so Edith Summerskill was um, the, the, the person I mentioned who was the Labour MP. She was also the Married Women's Association's very first president. Um, so within the, the Women's Disabilities Bill, um, it contained several different clauses. It was, uh, it was um, called by one of the other members an, an omnibus bill because it, it, can, it had lots of, lots of, it didn't have one central issue. Um, and it didn't really get very far at the time, but it kind of uh, was almost like a, like a prequel <laughs> to later reforms that were successful. Um, in the in the late 50s and, and early 60s so for example um there was a clause within the women's disabilities bill that related to housekeeping savings which then later was reflected within the married women's property act 1964 um and similarly um there were clauses that related to maintenance that were um later taken forward by the married women's association in the late 50s in the late 50s and um, were um, not successful, but were subsequently then taken forward uh, by the government um, following the Royal Commission of Marriage and Divorces report. Uh, those reforms about maintenance, again, sound very piecemeal. It was around ensuring maintenance could be paid through um not just relying on the husband to pay it, but if he didn't pay it, then it would come directly out of his pay packet um, to ensure that the, the wife actually would get some something, um, get some maintenance. Um, but again, it sounds piecemeal. It sort of sounds like it's relatively unimportant in the grand scheme of things, but it was massively controversial. It was opposed by... Um, trade unions at the time who saw it as threatening the sanctity of the pay packet, having 
you know, wives be able to go directly to the employers to get the money at the source. Um, so these were things, these were all kind of indirectly influential reforms in their own right. And so from that point of view, the Women's Disabilities Bill, again, sort of, but it's now you're never going to come across it in a family law textbook. Uh, but it had an indirect influence in that it inspired reform that came later that really did have an impact upon uh, the reality of women's lives. And so that reform that came later, that's not just the Married Women's Property Act of 1964, right? It's the Matrimonial Homes Act of 1967. Yes, that's another that's another act that I hadn't mentioned. Yes, um, uh, that enabled um, occupation rights in the home. So you know, so that if 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 a wife were deserted by her husband, she wouldn't be kicked out of her house, basically, uh, provided that um, her interests were registered on the deeds of the house. And that's something that actually, um, you know, I, I so. As I mentioned, I um, interviewed some family members and friends and people connected to members of the Married Women's Association for the book. And one of the people I spoke to was Edith Summerskill's daughter-in-law, Marley LaFollette, who uh, had practiced as a family lawyer and who remembers um, how her own clients were impacted by the Matrimonial Homes Act. So it was kind of, it was actually quite powerful to speak to her and be like, yeah, I know what my mother-in-law did for those women because I met those women and they told me and it was, they, they talked about Dr. Edith, this is, this is what she did for us. Um, and obviously it was, it was, it was Edith Summerskill and, and the Married Women's Association that lobbied and, and campaigned for that. Um, let's talk a little bit about those interviews, because that's a particularly interesting um, part of the book. Why did you decide to do that? And how did you find these people? I decided to do it because um, I was really keen to bring the stories and personalities of the members of the Married Women's Association to life as much as possible. Um I think that when you look in the archives, you obviously do get quite a lot of insight through through letters and through reports. Um, but there are inevitably gaps and there is uh, a lot more to, to find out. There were some interviews already available in the archives that I was able to listen to. Um, so there were interviews that had been carried out by the historian Brian Harrison with Juanita Francis, for instance, and she was really the the first chair, chairman, as they called it, chairman <laughs> and founder of, of the Married Women's Association. And just getting to hear firsthand, you know, from, you know, when I listened to those interviews, what what she said, it, it really kind of gave me that insight into, oh, this is this is a perspective I would like to try and get. Of course, um, most of the people who are associated with the association aren't alive anymore, but there are people who are family members who remember um, their relatives being in it or maybe don't remember their relatives being in it, but, but are able to tell me about about them. So um, it, it was, it, so I, in terms of locating them, I 
I had uh, some, you know, posters. I had a website. I used social media, and um, I just tried to see if I could find people connected to the members just through, um, uh, you know, just doing as much research as I could to, to in order to to track people down. Um, I didn't speak to very many people in the end. I think I spoke to to 10 people. Um, some people I was really lucky through word of mouth. They, they got in touch with me and I was really, really grateful to them for doing that. Um, you know, especially with regard, especially given that um, their family members were, you know, not necessarily executive committee members. So it did give me more of the insight into the kind of grassroots aspects of the association um so i so um some of the people i spoke to have already mentioned those connected with edith summerskill and i was very grateful to them for all their time telling me telling me about edith summerskill i also spoke to the family members um and, and friends connected with doreen gorski uh, so Doreen Gorski was uh, a vice president of the Married Women's Association. She's one of the people who stormed out with Helena Normanton, but she was also one of the first female executives in the BBC, and um, she was she was really really important within the BBC in the nineteen fifties within women's programs, and it was great being able to speak to her family because in their private papers they had uh, an unpublished biography that she had autobiography that she had written um about her own life her own memoir they'd never done anything with it it wasn't in archives and it was called no one special and it was it was just all about her and her life and you know it didn't have loads about the married women's association in it but you still got an insight into um you know her her feminism her personality her experiences and i think those things are important to record as well in terms of trying to produce a kind of group portrait of of a network like the married women's association so what ultimately happens to this group well it appears that they kind of stop their activities in the 1980s it's difficult though, because that's that's what the archives tell us. But there's still some mention of the Married Women's Association in um, Hansard, which is uh, where you go to read the records of parliamentary debates. And um, in the 1990s, I was able to find records of the Married Women's Association on Hansard, but their actual meetings and and notes. Um, from from that appear to stop around the kind of late 80s. A lot of the members are getting older. They're not getting a new membership. Really, the women's liberation movement is is um, has taken off in, in the 70s and in a lot of ways has, has overshadowed the work of the Married Women's Association. Um, and, you know, historically is seen as being something quite separate from the work of the Married Women's Association, which came decades earlier. But I think there are there is quite a lot of continuity actually between, you know, this um, earlier 20th century feminist work and what's 
commonly known as the second wave and especially when you know you look at the kind of wages for wives thing and how that was later has it has I know it's not the same thing but it has similarities it has echoes with the wages uh, wages for housework movement um you know these 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 demands about having a, about equal pay about women's work outside the home and inside the home having equal value um, these were all ideas and things that the Married Women's Association were saying in the 40s that were also like rallying cries of the women's liberation movement as well. So um, although there are there is consistency there, I think the I guess the, the branding of the group um, had had really um, led to very small membership indeed and um, they were they were still they were still active in the early eighties, but uh, gradually things were were starting to slow down. It, it, it's an amazing story. Thank you so much. Um, one last thing before I let you go: What are you working on now? Um, well, while I was writing the the book Quiet Revolutionaries, um, I was sort of thinking about my um my work before that which is in in family law so um I probably should have mentioned actually my background isn't as a historian it's um in kind of adult relationships and the financial consequences of of divorce um and I'm really really interested in how the Married Women's Association influences family law reform and what we can learn about family law reform from this feminist network because I think it gives this really really interesting different perspective than you get from just looking at those institutional accounts like law commission reports so in thinking about all of that while I was writing the book I was thinking well um well how well how how does this influence um you know, my, my own thoughts about reform now and really the central, at the, at the heart of the Married Women's Association is this notion of, of equal partnership in marriage. So my my next book that I'm working on at the moment is called The Road to Equal Partnership um, and it looks at reform now of the financial consequences of divorce. Uh, it's definitely inspired by the historical work of the Married Women's Association, even though the Married Women's Association won't be in this book because it's a, a book about the law now. Um, but it's something that is a bit of a live debate in England and Wales at the moment because the Law Commission is is looking into a sort of, they're carrying out a scoping exercise as to whether or not there will be reform or there is a need for reform of financial remedies and divorce. But I think that, um, you know, within these debates, there is it's important not to lose sight of the need to place, uh, the need to value um, non-financial contributions and for that for that to really be at the heart of reform, the value of care, the value of, of, of those, all of those things that the Married Women's Association said were really, really important if actually equality in relationships is going to be achieved. That's really exciting. Um, can't, can't wait for you to be finished with that. Um, thank you so much for your time, Sharon. Um, it's been wonderful and I've enjoyed it. Um, and I will let you go. 
uh, again. Thank you so much. Thank you, Janetta. It was lovely to talk to you. I really appreciate your time. <laughs> ah, and I appreciate yours. You're more than welcome. Thank you.